Oki, hello there, and welcome to the Fox Den. Nistu Anagok Biksipidaki. I am Andrea Truejoy Fox, your host for Talks with a Fox. I'm happy you have joined me on this colorful adventure of self discovery and lifelong learning. Throughout my journey, I have met some amazing human beings who are living inspirational and intentional lives as they fulfill their purpose and share their gifts with the world. I am excited to share these conversations with you, as well as some stories from my life as a Blackfoot woman, Nitsa Dabyaki, and as a teacher and artist who is navigating through this exciting and beautiful world we live in, challenges and all. So grab a tea or coffee and get ready to feel inspired as you reflect on your own exciting journey and your connection to the world. We are in this together, and there is so much for us to learn and share. Let's do this. I just want to thank you for following this wonderful journey and for connecting with Talks with a Fox on all of our social media and liking and commenting on our page. We appreciate all the inquiries that we have received regarding how you can further support Talks with a Fox podcast. So we have gone ahead and set up a Patreon account where you can subscribe and support the podcast. Feel free to go to patreon.com forward slash talks with a Fox podcast. There's also a link to the Patreon page on our Buzzsprout page where you can donate the amount of your choosing. It means so much to me that you are on this journey with us. I'm Andrea, your host for Talks with a Fox. Today, we have a super exciting episode because we are live on location here in the beautiful Blackfoot territory, and we are going to be talking with an incredible artist. She comes from the East Coast with her ancestral roots there, but she's based here in Alberta as well. And we get to see each other and be in the same room to talk, which is just so exciting for me. Because as you know, with COVID and the whole quarantine life right now that we are all still learning to figure out, you know, we don't always get to see people. But of course, with the safe practice of social distancing, we're making it happen today. So without further ado, I want to introduce the lovely Julia Rose Sutherland, who comes from Metapanage. Nigma Nation. She is an interdisciplinary artist with her practice which utilizes mediums as photography, sculpture, and performance. And we're going to unpack all of the amazing things that she has been creating and more importantly how she utilizes her art practice and her gifts of addressing very important issues that impact Indigenous people across North America. Welcome Uki Julia. Thank you so much for having me, Andrea. I'm so excited and humbled and grateful to be here to have these conversations with you. Um, yeah, it's unbelievable. And right now, Andrea didn't mention we're sitting here in Blackfoot Territory outlooking the beautiful hills at the Galt Museum and Archives. So what an amazing place to have conversations, an amazing person to have it with. <laughs> wow. You know, I was just so happy that we were able to coordinate. And um, I wanted to pick a location that would 
allow us to feel really connected with the land. And, and like you said, you know, we've got these huge windows and these huge views of, of uh, the land out here. And I also wanted it to be a place and a space that connects to the work that Julia does. While we are in a museum, you know, when we think about um, the archives, images, history, the work that Julia does, you know, it's very, your work is very much speaking to the past and how it's interconnected to everything today as an Indigenous person, woman, um, community member. So first of all, um, what are you working on right now? Well, that's a great question. Uh, working on a lot of stuff, preparation stuff for shows, uh, but physically manifestations right now, I'm actually working on quill work. Um, so Argonian and Mi'kmaq, um, which is a process of embellishment and embroidery done with porcupine quills. Um, so it's something I'm really passionate about. Um, my great aunt Betty Ann taught me how to do this in her kitchen while smoking and drinking red rose tea. You know, so there's a lot of fun mo memories with that uh, sitting with her. Um, but of course, uh, quill work is it a traditional Mi'kmaq um, craft applique, I guess you would call it, um, but it's something we've been doing for thousands of years, um, and right now I'm doing a lot of text work, so, and this was, um, I mean, I was working on quill work for sure in my grad graduate career too at the University of Buffalo in Buffalo, New York, um, but I was doing more sculptural work, more performative work with the quill work, um, which is something I'm still pursuing, um, but I'm taking some more time to do something more traditional uh, in the sense of the way that I'm using quills, uh, less exploration, explorative, uh, and more um, as a, a way to use texts, um, and, a, and kind of a contemporary, it's also contemporary, but it's kind of speaking to more to the classical ways that you would use it. Um, so there's a three step, uh, a, a series of three I'm making right now that'll be shown in Toronto at the end of October, actually, at a, uh, art, I guess you call it an art fair, art auction and fair, which is interesting. Um, but it was, uh, started when Rodney Levi, my cousin, was shot twice in the chest and murdered earlier this summer. Um, so the work was made, um, one, in meditation, uh, two in protests uh, and to digest what was happening, uh, and three in a way to educate or to bring up dialogue. So this is what the work is about. So um, the first piece that you would find, you'd find on my website or Instagram um, says, fuck the police. Um, and this was my first initial reaction of hearing the news that Rodney was shot. Um, yeah, I'd read it on Facebook. And same with his you know, immediate family was on Facebook, which was also really disturbing uh, and really awful. Um, the RCMP had called Chief Bill Ward, um, a family member of mine, telling him what had happened, but hadn't alerted his immediate family. Um, and so we were following this on Facebook. You know? And so when I found out, I went to the bathroom, I hit the floor, you know, and that's the first thing I said was, fuck the police, which is maybe vulgar. Um, but it was how I was feeling at the time. And I thought, you know, I needed to do something with my hands. I'm an artist. This is what I do. I make work that's political, that is looking at my life experiences. So this is what I, this is what, that was my response was, hey, I'm going to do some quill work uh, to pay homage um, in a way, but also to really think about what was happening and to digest 
the situation, you know, in the midst of COVID, Black Lives Matter and all these things, I'm, it's already on my mind, uh, racial injustices mm-hmm. uh, and police brutality is already on my mind. Um, so this gave me a chance and has been giving me a chance to kind of think through these things, uh, take your initial reaction, which might have been aggressive, might have been, um, you know, in the moment, but then taking that and using that in a way and using traditional craft to think through it. And what do you mean? Uh, what do you mean by when you say things like that? So then it's progressed to defund the police, um, which could be controversial to some. But in my mind, allocating money from from a big entity like the police RCMP um, to help social programming that will support them better, but support the community. Where does this money go to? Uh, and the last piece says refund communities. Um, again, going from one initial feeling and going through being methodical and thought out. And so that's what I'm working on right now. Wow, I love that. So very necessary work. I mean, as an artist, there's almost a feeling of responsibility to bring forth or uncover issues or um, social injustices that happen, especially to marginalized people, and in this case, being Indigenous. And I'm first of all, I'm sorry, my condolences about your family member, Rodney, you know, um, so sad. And I remember talking with your sister about it when it happened, and my thoughts are with you and his family because, as we know, it's not just what happened. It's also the aftermath of what happens in, to our families, to our communities, and the spiritual trauma of that as well. Um, but I, I, I'm particularly interested in your work, Julia, because of everything it brings forward. And you're very, you're just real with it. You know, you're not creating it for the purpose of even solely aesthetics. You know, when we think of art, sometimes people think, well, creating to be beautiful or creating to polish or, you know, but in this case, it's very much about a mirror that you're putting up to society to show what is happening and to not only create awareness, but to hold society accountable for what has happened. And I, I think art is a beautiful vehicle to do that. Um, I want to talk about your piece that I remember when you were in the midst of uh, creating during your MFA in Buffalo, New York. I believe it was titled The Deeply Loved Flesh. Mm-hmm. Yes, that piece. Can you talk about that? Um, as a woman, I was just very, um, I connected with it personally in so many ways and, and seeing what's happened with our Indigenous women, um, the violations, the trauma, you know, um, and the resilience. Can you talk about deeply loved flesh? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing up that piece. I've been thinking about this work a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Um, it was recently just shown at a gallery called WAP, mm-hmm. uh, Will Abel's Art Projects in Vancouver, just off East Hastings. Um, and this work is, I mean, I don't know where I came up with this This saying deeply love flesh i'm thinking about the skin a lot you know i was in the grad school and skin and concerns about the skin perception racialization discrimination marginalization all of these different things but also you know how beautiful the flesh is how enticing the flesh is how is it used as a commodity so this work was you know started out of you know my research about skin as a commodity and a trading of a substance um how people consume things thinking about things in a cannibalistic manner 
Um, and so when I made this beautiful sign, you know, there's something really evocative about neon. I've always loved neon. And for those at home, it's a 24 by 24 inch neon sign that says deeply loved flesh and cursive writing um, and a, a, red, a red neon. Um, so it's referencing also things, you know, like the red light district. It's referencing girls, 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 X, 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 porn, 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 you know, this idea of sex. And I'm thinking about sex trade. I'm thinking the way that we sell bodies and then thinking about, you know, here on Turtle Island and in Canada, thinking about who is being sold, what is being sold, how do we consume the body, how do we consume the marginalized body. And so this work was, in one, to kind of speak to those notions, but also mostly to speak to those, to speak to women um, and any sex worker. And it doesn't have to be women, of course, but to speak to sex workers in general and humanize that and to talk about this idea of the beauty of the body and the beauty of the flesh, um, but also to look at you know the other side of this, who is buying this, who's selling this. So this work fits on many different levels for me. For me, it's like a beacon of of hello, um, a beacon of remembrance too, uh, and 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 of love to talk about love and lateral love. You know, oftentimes we talk about lateral violence, especially within these communities with marginalized people. But to me, it's about love and loving the body and feeling at home in your body and acceptable in your body, um, no matter who you are. And I think there's a lot of negative. You know, when you think about sex work, there's a lot of negative connotations. And we see on media, too, people, the way they talk about people mm-hmm. who are in this work, you know, it's so dehumanizing. And I'm just, I just think it's about, not about that, it's about connection and about the, the body as this beautiful thing. And so that's really what that work was about. So I was so excited when Will Abel, he just called me up and he said, hey, I've seen your work. Uh, I would love to show this piece. Wow. And I thought, that's amazing. And he's like, you know, like, I'm on East Hastings. Like, this work would, it's an after-hours piece. It was only turned out at night, and it was not meant for people to come in, the everyday, like, uh, white art lover, or just everyday art daytime lover. It was for, you know, sex workers. That's what the piece was for. Yeah. And I was so thrilled to have that piece shown in Vancouver to be seen and to glow at night for someone else. Um, not for the typical gallery goer. So that was an intention. So I was so thrilled and happy that it was received, uh, you know, by another BIPOC artist and curator to say, hey, I understand what you're doing. I see it. So it was nice that that happened. Wow. Yes. I mean, oh, the images that go through my mind right now and, and intentionally creating it for a certain audience, um, yeah, and I love how you talk about again art can art can be seen as a privilege. Creating art or those who appreciate it, the patrons, you know, or a certain culture. But with your art, it's accessible to anybody, and it's also honoring. Well, this piece in particular is on an honoring of the people that perhaps may not fit into those groupings, if you will. Um, so creative though also I have to speak to your creativity too I mean and it's it's truly a gift and to have it even in the evening you know as opposed to daytime and have and I wonder you know I'm just thinking out loud here but I really wonder about the people that you created this for that community and what their thoughts would be on this and you know or just to see somebody say hey I see you and you matter and your body matters and um, you are loved 
you know, that's incredible. And, you know, we may make an assumption that maybe they don't always get to hear that or see that within themselves because of how society per perceives them and speaks of them rather than to them or with them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's the thing too, like I, of making this work too, and the intention of, of who it's for. Um, but I don't know how it's received by that mm -hmm. community either. So I think that's something that needs to be addressed in my own practice. I mean, it's forever. We're always growing. We're always seeing different things, um, changing our perspectives and evolving. So I think this is also like, what's the next step? You know, like you go to grad school, like you mentioned, I made this piece when I was in Buffalo, New York, yeah. in grad school. Uh, and you're there for two years and you're having the worst time of your life. Like, I mean, it's the best. Like, I loved, I loved grad school. I had yeah. some of the best times of my life. But it was also like this torturous, weird time where you have to do a million different things at once. Like, yeah, anyone who's been to grad school, you know what I'm talking about. Like, it's, and then you're tired. You don't know what's going on. You're writing the thesis. You're also making work. You're also like going to all these things. And so sometimes you don't think about what that is, what's going to happen with that work that, you know, we talked earlier about aftercare. What's that aftercare of that work going to be like? when you're just making the work and you're making production. And you're thinking about things maybe more academic terms, which is also, I mean, productive and it's good to do, but sometimes you gotta think about what does this mean on humanistic terms? And I think that's the goal of my work, whether I'm meeting it or not, is to think about things, how do I make this humanistic? And what does that say? And who am I making it for? Why am I making it for? And how is it serving those communities? So it's something, you know, that I'm going, I'm thinking about now and sitting with myself for a long time to say, what do I do next? How does this work go? How do I go next? Where does it go? Wow. Very, um, very important questions. And I would, from what I've understood in our indigenous communities, that's pretty much what the indigenous artist lens is about is not just creating for self, but really creating for community, keeping community in mind and that responsibility to how the message you're putting out there is projected and how society may then take it, receive it and translate it. Uh, because really what we do as indigenous people is as we walk around in society, we are almost seen as a one voice for all when really we're all unique individuals. We are connected to community but we do carry that responsibility and I will say sometimes a burden, you know. Um, but I think just your approach to your creation in your art practice is very telling of who you are, not only as an artist, but also a mem an Indigenous woman and um, how you came into this world as an artist and the way you look at things. Um, speaking of, can you tell us about your community, um, your Mi'kmaq? And uh, by the way, everybody, one of my best friends is Julia's sister, Amanda. I just got to give Amanda a shout out. I love you, Amanda. <laughs> She's going to love that. Um, that's how Julia and I got to meet, and um, it's just been amazing. And and uh, speaking on that note, I also had the lovely joy of working with Julia previously, um, bringing Julia into one of the public school districts in Lethbridge, Alberta, to work with a group of Indigenous students and non-Indigenous students on um, truth and reconciliation understandings, getting these children and youth to basically tell us what they think of truth and reconciliation because as adults we can often say this is what I think it is or this is what it is now take this information and go with it but this piece this particular group was really about we want to hear from you because you are that next generation and Julia came in and 
did a beautiful piece with the students and they got to use their hands and she was talking and telling stories and the kids were listening and absorbing what she was uh, sharing with them. So thank you, Julia, for coming down and, and doing that. Um, I really enjoyed that work from a teacher perspective, but also um, just seeing how the kids interacted with you. So anyways, I just wanted to give everyone a little history on how Julia and I met and so grateful to continue to uh, stay connected and um, I have yet to go out to your community, but Amanda and I have talked about it. When she's out that way, that's when I'm going east, and um, she'll get to share and show where you ladies are from. So can you tell me more about your community? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's a Red Bank, New Brunswick. Um, that's where the res reservation is. Uh, originally from Nova Scotia, but relocated to Red Bank, mm. um, New Brunswick, which is a beautiful area. I mean, just across from Moncton. Okay. Um, so the Menabishnaj and Mi'kmaq tribe is there. Uh, Chief uh, Bill Ward, who is my cousin, is currently part of Chief and Council, of course, uh, leading it up. Um, and they're doing amazing strides of, you know, we talk about uh, sovereignty and having a sovereign nation and self-sufficiency. They're amazing. They're wonderful, and they're doing such amazing things uh, in terms of education initiatives. Um, so for me, I mean, I haven't, we haven't been there in a while. I don't know if Matt has talked to you about this, but it's been quite a while. Um, my mother used to be there, so we, we would be us visiting her as well as my great-grandmother. Um, but it's just, you know, like my grandma has eight siblings, wow. uh, six still living, all at the reservation, and they're just like the most amazing, wonderful group of knowledgeable people with everything. Like I was saying, um, Betty Ann, my great-aunt, taught me how to quill. You know what I mean? Like, it's amazing. Um, it's a really beautiful area, too. I mean, of course, on the news right now, like, I can't help but think about what's happening right now in Nova Scotia, mm -hmm. if you're following along, um, with, you know, rights to fishing and trapping of animals. Um, in, in the Mi'kmaq of Nova Scotia are experiencing a lot of turmoil right now from aggressive uh, lobster catchers. I don't know if you're following this, but this has been what's happening. So there's also this idea of, like, this beautiful sovereign nation who has... You know, all, all these amenities in place and are like taking care of themselves in the communities in so many wonderful ways. But there's also this pushback. So there's this constant frustration um, happening. And it's really hard to be away, you know. When Rodney passed, you know, it's hard because you're so far away from your family uh -huh. or from that community that you want to be with. But there's also like this beautiful resilience happening um, of people coming together and being there uh, and rallying behind. Um, so it's quite a wonderful place. I mean, unlike Lethbridge, and we're looking at this like the prairie territories, um, you know, it's rivers, forests, and water. So it's uh. a wonderful little haven of a spot, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, but there's also, I mean, things that I work with alongside of my work are talking about you know, trauma, sublimation, mm. substance abuse, you know, and in Moncton, Fragmenton, and in Red Bank, there is a huge issue right now at mm -hmm. hand. Um, so, you know, this is happening on all over Canada, and I don't think it's an Indigenous problem. I think it's a Canadian problem um, that needs to be addressed. But it's something I'm thinking about a lot, about, you know, being at home and my family and what is happening, especially to the youth, you know, and my younger family and what's mm -hmm. going to happen. But I see this trend of just beautiful resilience and education mm -hmm. happening, mm -hmm. uh, and I love it. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit about my community. 
you yeah. know, and I'm doing actually, so I'm doing a lot of work um, with um, notions of alternative healing methods, in particular looking at the Sundance and at sweat lodges. Uh, and I'm lucky, you know, like I know it's COVID, I can't go there and I can't be necessarily at home, if you will, but I'm having this amazing opportunity of being mentored uh, digitally, you know, virtually, especially yeah. by my uncle, Jeffrey Ward, who is a firekeeper, he is a knowledge keeper, and he's a sun dancer. So I'm learning all this new, all these new things in a different way than I thought I would. You know, we kind of talk about, you know, learning the Indigenous perspective as, you know, an act of you're there hands-on approach. Yeah. But this is an interesting thing, though, now that you can actually have these connections digitally and it's weird and I don't know if it's only because of COVID this is really I'm thinking about it this way but it's so interesting it's like I can be so far away but yet I'm still connected and those teachings are still potent to me it's it's very beautiful yes wow I mean we have to do what we can to grasp and and access these teachings um, especially as our elders get older you know we want to make sure we continue to take time to sit with them or to talk with them and to learn and listen and I think that's great that you're doing that and I mean you have to get creative when you live on one side of the country and they live on the other side absolutely yeah and you just want to you know you get the beck and home though like you want to yeah. be there it's especially in times of turbulence yes. there's something about that for me where I just want to be there yes. be with people and you know learning different perspectives it's so important so I mean in future plans all these things you just start thinking how do you prioritize things? You know, even my my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who is Mi'kmaq, like, you know, she is even at this point where she said to me, you know, I want to move back east to be closer to my family. She's like, you're my family here, of course. And she moved here for us to begin with, me and my, and my sisters. But she starts looking at it and says, I want to be near my sisters and my other family, too. And you start to prioritize things. So it's a really, it's a big thing. And to also think about landscape and a home geographically too and what does that mean I mean like home is Calgary for me but also like home is tradition you know yes. and I, I didn't you know it's interesting being in Buffalo on the east coast yes. you know uh, just past the border of Toronto and Ontario there uh, and feeling closer to home than bef ever before you yeah. know because you know I'd open a book and I'm doing research and they talk about the Mi'kmaq like we're there <laughs> like, there's no you know there's no question about it everything you open everything you're reading you're there yeah and it was like oh wow is this what it feels like to be transplanted you know instead of being so far away from quote-unquote home it's yeah where is home so I think about this a lot in my work too like perspective location and home uh, and what does that mean and I think, yeah, I felt very at home in Buffalo. Of all places, Buffalo, <laughs> New York. <laughs> well, you will, you spent, what, two years there? Yeah. So, and by the way, congratulations on your convocation. That was last year. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so amazing. And and you're, you're an artist that is just, you know, you're on this momentum, but this journey, and it's beautiful that you've been sustaining that because, you know, it's it's a lot to live in one place and then to move back or move somewhere and then retransition. And but I've what I've been observing of your work, can I follow your journey as you just as you continue to create and connect with what is going on in your world and the world um, at hand. I, I, I just want to mention a few of the themes that come out of your work or what you're addressing. Yes, so you're covering very important subjects, addiction, mental health, feminism, Aboriginal identity, politics. Um, have you 
what has been the response, if you will, from um, maybe people or communities connected to these areas, or have you had a chance to um, engage with people who have encountered these, whether they were in your own community or just in general? You know, yeah, that's a great question. I've received, I mean, amazing feedback from people, um, which is really awesome. Because, you know, I'm not making this work necessarily to, like, show at a gallery to get a grant. You know, I'm making the work because I feel it necessary to make. Mm -hmm. Um, But I happen, you know, especially in Buffalo, New York, you know, like I was in the Haudenosaunee Nation amongst the Seneca and Tuscarora people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was a guest for them. Uh, And I was making a lot of work dealing with indigeneity while being a guest in a different territory. Uh, And I was receiving, you know, I received such great counsel there. um, And I was so lucky, especially from the indigenous community there. So it was really, you know, that's kind of what keeps me going. Uh, You know, and then also receiving from family members in New Brunswick and the Ontario region, actually. Um, Like, I get these messages from aunts and uncles being like, I'm so proud, like, what are you? What you're doing is great, and they just can't believe it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that's really gratifying in a lot of ways to hear that. It's also gratifying to hear that I'm maybe not, you know, like the syntax or the way that I'm writing things is proper. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, like mm-hmm. I am trying to be more familiar with my language, in mother tongue, mm-hmm. uh, although it's definitely hard and it's something you have to strive to do. Um, but my uncle Rob once he he wrote me an email saying, "Wow, you did such a great job! Like you really put the effort into that." And you know, like that's just a show of respect. So I have been receiving some good feedback, um, and I love that too. And I'm currently doing uh, artist in residence with the Women's Center of Calgary. Um, so also do working workshops, um, doing talks online, digital stuff, uh, and that's been also receiving some really great feedback about the work in general. Um, but there's always more to be had, you know, there's always more community to have. Uh, I know it's hard, you know, COVID, it's hard right now in the pandemic of things to be with people, but I feel like it just has to happen. Um, and I want to foster community too. You know, like I've always felt a little bit outside of the community, you know, um, and I don't know if it's because I'm far away from home or because, you know, like I went to a high school with two other indigenous students other than my sisters or uh you know I went to university uh and there was an indigenous center started after I graduated Mm -hmm. uh you know like sometimes you just feel out of it but also being white passing which is something that is really important to my work uh into the context of the work that I make um as a white passing indigenous person I have an immense privilege uh and a different perspective you know and it's something that has to be taken into account all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's something that weighs on my work and my identity all the time. Like, I never, you know, you read my statement too, and it says, you know, like, I'm half Mi'kmaq, half, uh, I mean, a little bit Irish, Scottish, and then Cree line on my grandfather's side. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something you got to think about, you know. Mm-hmm. So community is really important, and every time I get a little grasp of it, I just feel so enriched. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's also another step, too, is, like, how do I foster community versus how do I find community? Uh, Those are two different things, yes. you know? Like, I can, you know, go to a workshop or I can meet with people and, you know, I can attend a powwow or I can attend a regalia. You can do these things and you feel a certain way, but also, like, where where is my initiative and the step of, of fostering that? Mm-hmm. And I find that with my artwork, I it gives me a little bit of, uh, I would say... gives me the ropes you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so um for example in Buffalo New York uh when I had my thesis show at the SIPA underground gallery um 
I had a piece called Give Me Dick, which means paying homage. Okay. Um, and this piece uh, was 308 names of Indigenous women in Canada who had been murdered or killed in according to RCMP on, on suspicious ways. So um, they had died. But it would be it would be a woman, let's say, like was smashed, her head was smashed in. Yeah. And then they say, oh no, it's not suspicious. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Tina Fontaine was on this. Yes on this list and you're going this is not an accident this is is very much so an intentional um ongoing genocide in canada yes um and then so this piece included 308 names all individually embossed on a piece of paper gridded on a wall uh and viewers were invited to come into the space burn sage use the ash from the sage um to then take their finger put Put it on top of the name, and then you would you would see the name highlight out because um, it was in Boston. Um, and then you were to say their name out loud um, as a part of just giving a recollection, giving remembrance, or even citing that you've seen this name. Yeah. You know, acknowledgement of this uh, and feeling that name, and what does that mean to feel it? Uh, and then, of course, they were given a QR code they could scan into and then read the stories okay. of each woman because I thought that was also very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this work for me creates community, you know, um, community in terms of paying homage into ancestry and to the, these women. Um, you know, it's a very emotional piece. You know, I think about, you know, vulnerable women. I think about my mom a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and I think about what that feels like to be missing or to be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you see these headlines and, and people say, oh, that's like really sad. Or it's always so sad. But I said, you know, but there's so much resilient, beautiful community in, in that as well. And the people behind that. And I think it's important to acknowledge. Um, and I found a really interesting hap- thing happening there where I was having these amazing, open and frank discussions um, with so many different people. Mm-hmm. Not just white settler mm-hmm. settlers or other people not involved in the community, but indigenous communities too. And this led to a lot of conversation about, again, lateral kindness and love, which is all part of this idea. And the thesis show was called Engacht, which means taking care of, which was like such a part of the way that I was looking at things. Uh, I mean, I make work that's antagonistic or that is sad. People always say, oh, it's sad, but it's also supposed to be hopeful and to look at these these other facets of, of things, of love and of compassion, of humanizing. Um, so I feel like that's where I can create community in a sense. Um, and then, of course, it's where I want to strive to work on more and to build up further. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I started, as you were telling me this, I started thinking about your piece titled Mother. Um, Uma, Mama, Mother? Is, did I say it right? Okay. That was, wow, so incredibly um, captivating, The the, you know, the whole, um, it's like a sweat lodge, the way it's shaped, but can you tell me more about it and the flesh colors that you used? And um, your, your work very much speaks to the female voice and the indigenous female voice. Um, and, and you know, as you were talking about um, Tina Fontaine and the other many women in our communities who have suffered and, you know, their lives were, were ended through violence, um, 
it's unfortunate, but this has been going on for hundreds of years, you know, since since uh, settlers had arrived and what has happened and is happening to our women. And yes, maybe it is sad and maybe your work makes people feel uncomfortable and have to look inward and, and ask themselves, well, what can I do? Often that's something as a teacher and educator, I often get asked by uh, settlers is, well, what can I do to um, basically you know, address reconciliation? How can I be part of that? Or what can I do to make a difference? You know, and and it's good to ask those questions, but it's also, it is a Canadian, like you said, it's a Canadian problem and it's a Canadian responsibility to look inward and to ask, what am I doing or what am I not doing? Silence is violence, you know? If you're not participating in any type of way and activism doesn't necessarily have to be participating in a protest or a march. It's in your attitude in itself because how you behave and think is how you're going to go out into society when you see that Indigenous woman or you see that Indigenous person you encounter. How you think of them is how you're going to behave towards them and interact or not interact with them. And I think of your art and all of this well, you just talked about our women especially, and our women are so very special and sacred beings because we bring life into this world and that's how our communities continue to grow and expand. And when we think of the genocide you talked about and the um, sterilization of Indigenous women, that right there is in itself saying that the world, you know, well, so the societies that participate in that violence and genocide to us is saying that you don't matter and that indigenous women don't belong in this world, you know? And it's time that we take charge of those dialogues and even as artists, well, yeah, it shouldn't just be us alone. However, often the weight of that falls on our shoulders and the work that you're doing is very deep, it's very profound and I, I'm, I would imagine there's a lot that comes with it, the emotional uh, feelings that you feel when you're reflecting, like you said, in your own family, in your own histories and then attached to the Indigenous community, your peace Uma, Mama, Mother, can you talk about that? Absolutely. Because that's what came to mind. Absolutely. I mean, this deals with motherhood, and it deals with labor on, on all levels. And actually, this is the second time I made this piece. Kind of. So the first time I made this piece when I was in my undergrad uh, in the, like a fiber installation class. Uh, and the big joke was that I just made like a giant womb. And everyone was like, this is so funny. Like, why would you make this womb? But I was concentrating on making safe spaces, comfortable spaces that felt um, organic, uh, that felt welcoming, um, that, again, was about community and people. And then later on, you know, when I went to Buffalo, I had an amazing opportunity to go to China, um, to go to Beijing, China, to do a residency there uh, and work along collaborators. So this was a collaborative piece. So, I mean, the work had already been kind of made, but I was working with two other people kind of discussing ideas, and motherhood and labor were so important to us. Um, and that was the biggest thing. We, we were just a bunch of uh, feminists sitting there in China, like trying to think about what to make. Uh, and it kind of, this idea of the womb was really important and of craft. So I have a background in craft. I went to the, what is now the Alberta University of Arts, um, formerly known as ACAD, uh, Alberta College of Art and Design. Uh, and my specialty was the textiles and new media. Um, so my degree's in craft which is like there's a whole nother thing, you know, debate about craft and fine art. Um, 
but like, I've always been a crafty person, so there we are. <laughs> but this, this piece was made in response to the idea of labor directly, uh, and of unseen labor, and of unacknowledged labor, especially by women. Um, so the piece itself uh, was a hand-woven sweat lodge dome shape, and then you go inside, and it was hand-felted and dyed felt uh, in a flesh pinky color. Wow. Uh, and then at the top of it, there was an opening meshed with the felts that you would go into and you could sit in this space. You could set up to six people in this quote unquote womb, we would call it, or in, in my mind, it was a, it's a sweat lodge. It's about healing and meditation and it's a warm space. But it's also, again, this idea of the womb and of yeah. growing and of taking introspective time and to think and to feel comfortable within that space. Uh, and you would go into the space and uh, we had a heartbeat sound. So which also, you know, for me was like indicative and throwback to this idea of drumming, uh, of pacemaking, of being in a place um, and a grounding as well. Um, and it was interesting, the reception of this was like people would not get out of the womb. They wouldn't leave it. They would just want to stay in it, which is nice. Or they were repulsed by the womb, which is, I feel, is how, the, you know, the woman's body is received in in reality or in practical life. You know, either it's repulsive or it's a place of birth and mm -hmm. of immense power. Um, yeah. So it does deal with, yeah, exactly what you were saying about power. I mean, like, this is where we come from. Like, mm -hmm. It's something so integral to the being of life. That's the one, that's the thing you need. This is the catalyst that brings you in. This is the vessel. Uh, so thinking about vessel too, but then also thinking about, you know, like what does this emulate in, in my history? Uh -huh. Or where do, where do we go and how is that used in, in my culture? You know, and so the sweat lodge is something that I've been very interested in. Um, and thinking about how is that, how does that work? And is that, is that why it's such a transformative practice or ritual ceremony if you will you know so I'm working with this now so I'll be going to the Bemis Center of Contemporary Art next summer now oh, it's been wow. postponed because of COVID but I'll be yeah. there December 2021 working on a sweat lodge series uh, with the Pawnee Nation there so it'll be really interesting to be working again with a different nation yes. uh, you know different people different customs different everything uh, and seeing how this will translate and what I can learn from this experience and think about for me, this the sweat lodge being the womb, or being an extension of the womb, an extension of healing, an extension yeah. of growth. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, yeah, such powerful work. And I really want to see this installation um, in person, and I want to sit inside of it. Um, I'm just picturing it all, even the lighting from the images that I've seen and imagining myself in such a, a safe space, you know, and essentially that's also what women really need. And people, people at the end of the day need safe spaces where we can share, where we can heal, where we can connect, um, and I, that's why I just, I'm such a fan of your work, Julia, because you create, you, you address hard issues that not just anyone can or wants to talk about. Um, and then you provide these nurturing um, pieces as well that bring feelings of safeness. And, and that, like you said, that hope that we can have safe spaces. There are safe spaces because, yeah, when we get lost in the t statistics or 
um, the darker side of things that are happening, we also need to see and feel that hope and see that love and that light. And as an artist, you're able to bring these all forward. And it's, it's a beautiful balance, I would say. And I would also imagine for yourself healing in other ways and also just it's work that fills you back up, I would imagine. It does. And I think also talks about universality. You know, I, I, you know, I made something similar in the past, but I, I had to go to China, to Beijing, to meet these two beautiful women, Yang and Eunice, to talk about these same issues, about safety, about women, about that kind of power, um, vulnerability, but also resilience, you know? So it was really interesting to, you know, think about it in a global way as well, rather than just like, this is how I feel about things, but also like making this work in tandem with these two other beautiful women and saying, okay, where do I see myself in this and how does this relate to me and my own practices? And so it's almost acting as a jump off point too. And I think that's why it's so important to collaborate, to talk with others, get other perspectives, because it's not necessarily just about my perspective. It shouldn't be about my perspective only, you know? I think that's also what's really important. And also just trying to, to be in tandem with other people and other communities mm-hmm. and how does that work? Um, but the universality of some of the work I think is important um, mm-hmm. to think about because I think you know there's so many marginalized communities. There's so much happening in the world and what's gonna make us stronger is coming together and to have conversations and to have these dialogues and to again, make space. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about, like we're talking about space as in this installation, but literally making space for that to happen with people I think is so important. Um, so it's something I'm also thinking about. I'm thinking about lots of things. That's a mind of an artist. (laughs) You know, you never stop thinking and creating and envisioning and, you know, speaking life into things that sometimes other people who maybe are not, um, connecting with their artistic voice or identity, you know, you get to do that and help people reimagine also the possibilities, which I always believe that you know, you're an educator and, you know, whenever you're in a role of educating others and sharing and teaching, um, as daunting as things may look as human beings, we also really need that hope. We need to see that. And when I think of allies, I think that sharing that with them empowers them to fulfill that role as an ally, an authentic ally, because there's allies out there, (laughs) you know, and who, um, in fact, are often doing a disservice to Indigenous people. I say allies in quotes because, um, you know, that's that's also another place where people are speaking for Indigenous people rather than just, you know, letting the Indigenous person speak for themselves and empowering themselves. I believe that we really can empower ourselves rather than empowering others. You know, through the work, you may inspire someone, but as human beings, and in this case, as Indigenous people, it's really on us to empower ourselves um, and to give ourselves permission to do what we need to do, um, to be authentic and to address issues and to be the teachers of what has been happening. And your work as an artist is very informative. You're bringing that forward, and your work is allowing others to have the hope, but also to look at their own assumptions, and then how can they then go forward? You know, okay, now what do I need to do next? I always always say, what is the next thing? What is the next step? Because we can have the knowledge, but if we're not applying it, then it's basically like a beautiful, wonderful, thick book of knowledge on the shelf, (laughs) and you're not reading it, you know? Um, But your work inspires and invokes people to be accountable and to 
look at how they can be a true ally in becoming aware, becoming informed, and then supporting Indigenous people. And when I say that, I say it's supporting Indigenous people to make the decisions they need to make for themselves, you know. Um, so I wanted to uh, ask you about... Uh, well, actually, I, I really appreciate how in your artist statement, the trickle-down effect, how your a lot of your, your current work is the concept of the trickle-down effect. So the intergenerational trauma, you know, that's a whole other area of um, uh, life that Indigenous people endure is the intergenerational trauma. Like, you and I didn't go to residential schools, but our families did, and we are therefore impacted by that. One thing I always, to help put it in perspective, Physically, I may look okay, you know, as, as we speak, you know, we all walk around, we're resilient, we're, you know, doing our best to fulfill our purpose and, and keep going, keep trudging along. But inside, you know, the for the person in society, they may look at you and say, well, there's nothing wrong with them. They look okay or, you know, they're doing fi just fine. However, there are the psychological effects. There's the emotional effects. Um... But I always say, okay, if you would like a physical validation that I have been impacted by residential school, well, one is that I'm speaking English. I'm not speaking in my mother tongue right now, Blackfoot, as a fluent speaker. So there's your evidence. Yes, thank you for saying that 100%. People don't think about this, you know, the colonial impact. They say, you know, it's so monetary. They want monetary value. Yeah. They want to see it. They want statistics. That's what they want from you. And they want it to be written by someone of authority. And what does authority mean to them? It, it's wild to me. Um, oh, it's wild. It just makes me, I'm going off, I'm going to go off on a tangent, you know. But it's, it's true, you know, like the, the trickle down effect, I think is so real. And people are so soon to close that off and not think about this idea of lateral violence in communities and where does that violence come from where does this come from you know uh and i have the, i feel the same thing that you're speaking about like people will say you look fine you're doing fine you know like you were educated all these things and all these things are great but all these things don't mean anything um i'm not okay mm -hmm. and it's okay not to be okay that's how yes. i feel yes um and i'm gonna say that i'm literally not okay like you know life is hard and it's hard for anyone um but when you're dealing with communities that have been trampled on, who've been cut off from their traditions, from their language, from their customs, from everything that they've ever known, and you've beaten, raped, abused, and dehumanized them still to this day in this ongoing genocide of these customs and the peoples, it has an effect. I think about, you know, especially Indigenous youth living on reservations or in, you know far off community areas isolated away I don't know how they do it you know I'm lucky I was brought up by an amazing grandmother um and I had my amazing sisters with me to support me you know I was surrounded by beautiful brown bodies that taught me this was they were okay or that they were valued they were loved that I was loved uh but I was also brought up around bodies that were hurt um who were in turmoil you know, it's it's called the soul wound is what I kind of think of it. You know, it's not this 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 you have a scar in your face to show that you've been hurt, but it's in your soul. And it is like what you just said, like the evidence is that I don't speak that I don't speak my mother tongue, that you weren't brought up with your mother tongue, that you maybe you don't know your customs. 
and that's it's hurtful and it's hard because you know you search for that and we're also on the site of all of this too it's not just like oh i could go to scotland and learn about my scottish heritage you know um i'm home i'm here Mm -hmm. like i'm on this land uh, and I'm co- constantly being told I don't belong here mm. or that there's something innately wrong with me or that I'm a mythos, that I don't exist. Mm. That's, I think about this a lot. And I think about this a lot in terms of how this affects, again, in youth and what does that mean? Uh, and then think about how can I positively in- impact that too? Uh, and I think that it comes down to this idea of decolonizational practices. Mm-hmm. We could talk about truth and recolation, reconciliation all we want, but reconciliation is a dirty word in my mind. It's non-existent. It doesn't mean anything. It's a blanket statement. I have issues, mm. clearly. I've been think, I think about this. But I think that decolonizational practices, uh, especially as an educator, is so integral to you know, the, the progress of Canada and what Canada could look like. Yes. Um, yeah, and just education. You know, and it's hard in these times, you know, I look at the Jason Kennedy government and I'm pretty disappointed and I'm pretty infumed and I'm, and I'm upset uh, thinking about educational cuts. I'm thinking about health care, everything, you know, that all directly affect Indigenous people. Yes. Uh, and not in the even, you're not educating us, but you're not educating them. You're not educating the general Canadian uh, and they're doing them a disservice. You're doing us a disservice. So yeah, I think about trickle-down effect a lot, this, this, this notion. And I think it comes down to the, the solution to this is education. Uh, and who's teaching that education? Yes. Because as you said, <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I know a lot of people that I know who are in education, and I, I'm so happy for that. But when you're teaching young children about Indigenous studies of Canada, it should be taught by an Indigenous person. Yes. Someone who knows what they're not just knows what they're talking about in terms of academic excellence. That's also a thing. Like I'm glad yeah. that people are educated and getting educated. That's amazing. But I'm talking about it from experience. Lived it's experience. from living through that soul wound we yes. talk about that I mentioned, like living through that. And that's what's important. Representation, authentic representation. That is so important. I mean, you know, you look, I, I'll, I'll use my community for an example. There's so many people that have gone out to go get their teaching degrees, principals, you know, they've gone on to do their master's, PhDs. And then I look in the systems off reserve and I say, where are these people? You know, I know they're not all working in their community because, first of all, there's not enough jobs for them to be able to, not enough schools. Um, But then I look around and I say, where are these people? You know, I myself was one of those people. I did have a position in in off-reserve, and that was very a very challenging, traumatic experience for me, being the only Indigenous female principal in a very homogenous district. And I had my challenges. And this isn't just in this area localized. It's across the country. You know, it's very problematic that we don't see Indigenous educators, in the, enough of them in the education systems, teaching Indigenous children and all children. And like you said, Julia, having that Indigenous voice and lived experience is so essential to really, truly educating educating the people who are now going to be the next generation of the leaders, political leaders, the people making policy, who are going to create legislation and who are going to ultimately shape how this country looks in the next 10, 15, 20 years. You know, when we sit here right now, as we sit here in 2020, do we want to be sitting here 
10, five, even five years from now, having these same conversations about accountability, about authentic leadership, about, you know, indigenous leadership, you know, I don't want to, <laughs> I'm tired of it. I'm exhausted by it and living it. We live it every day, you mm-hmm. know, where, when you go into the store, you encounter it. When you go into your, uh, different communities, when you go, you know, somewhere and you, you, you look around and again, you're the only indigenous voice at the table. You know, that's, that's old. That's very old and outdated. And we Mm -hmm. need to move past that. Canada needs to move past that. Society needs to move past that and get comfortable with the fact that indigenous people are, we're here to stay. This is our land. And more importantly, we're more than willing to teach. That's the beautiful part of it all. Yeah, absolutely. That's also the thing, like we're storytellers, like innately we're storytellers, you know, we grow we want to teach we want to talk we want to have these conversations you know i grew up having tough conversations all the time like it was very open in our family and i think yeah. it was so helpful for the way i grew up and that shaped me to be able to have you know open dialogue about social issues and issues that pertain to personal effect personally our family uh, and i don't know any I wouldn't say that anyone I know, you know, in my community doesn't want to teach or doesn't want to be there. I don't think that we want the onus to be on us. Yes. I don't think you want it, this is the burden and you want to backpack it on us and you want to be the only person there and it should be this, like, you're the token person of this group and you have to explain us. You know, like, that's not what we want, but we want an equal opportunity to educate yes. in a proper way and be respected for it. Yes. Uh, you know, that's, that's what it comes down to is respect. And, like, again, thinking about this idea of, of equity and balance in in Canada, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's just not there. And of course, in five years, I don't want to be having these conversations. Yeah, either. I mean, I will have these conversations, <laughs> but I don't want to because it is exhausting yeah. just thinking about it all the time. You know, when I was in Buffalo, I mean, the the relationship between the Indigenous in America and Indigenous in Canada and settler population is very, of course, different and varies. Mm-hmm. But you know, I was in Buffalo, New York, uh, surrounded by reservations. You know, it's a whole Indigenous nation. Uh, Tuscarora's right there. Seneca's right there. Like, I'm, you're in, you're surrounded. Mm-hmm. You know, I go to I'm going to school, they have two campuses, there's like over 50,000 students going to this school, like it's a large school. It's also university, city, kind of town idea. Uh, And I was one out of five indigenous instructors at the school. Uh, And I was only, you know, do it, I was teacher of record for painting and, and um, 2D design courses, but I wasn't even like, I'm not tenured, there's no, there's one tenure track indigenous teacher at University of Buffalo. Uh, there's less than 200 students of Indigenous descent at University of Buffalo. And I thought it was so interesting and I started thinking, okay, this, I mean, I don't think that disparity rate is different uh, in Canada necessarily either um, because we well know that the support for Indigenous students is lacking. Yes. Uh, it's also jarring to go from a community-based education at home with your family in your own community to, let's say, if you want to go to the University of Alberta, it's very different. Like, things are different, you know, uh, and the support is not there. So the dropout rate is wild. Mm. Uh, and it's astounding to me. They just need community. Like, everyone needs community. Yes. But I think Indigenous youth definitely need community because they're being ostracized at every moment that it can happen. You know, yes. they're being questioned at everything. They're being looked at, hyper-visualized more than anyone else, mm-hmm. I find. Uh Constantly having to validate Always. their existence. Yeah, they're, yeah, the fact that they're alive and that they're yes. there. Yeah. And so I imagine this would be, it's just so frustrating for people, you know. 
like to go to, I don't know, I don't even know how you would do it, like leave a remote location, let's say, and then, you know, you're supported by your family and everyone. You see yourself and you're represented there and you're, you know, that's support in itself. Mm -hmm. To then go to, you know, like you're talking about being the principal of this homogeneously different landscape for yourself, but also you're being looked at in a different way too. Yes. And you got to say, what gives? Like, what, what is that? And how is that possible when there's so many people that I know that you know that are qualified, that are willing, that want to do it. So what does it come down to? What does that mean? Yes. A lot of questions and a lot of frustration, <laughs> a lot of head shaking. Oh, yes. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, and then the challenges for Indigenous students don't stop after high school. Like you said, you transition into post-secondary and then, you know, the challenges of adapting to that. And, and yeah, we're very close to our families and communities and it's hard being away from them. And then when you add in um, things that are happening in the communities, again, what a lot of us encounter is death, Mm -hmm. grief, loss. Um, You carry that with you wherever you go. See, that's the the challenge that often non-Indigenous um, settlers miss sometimes is that as an indigenous person we carry our community with us wherever we go mm-hmm. the beautiful the challenging all of the in between and so it's very difficult for us to separate you know okay I just get to go to work or I just get to go to school and I'm here and I'm on 100% focused and engaged whereas it's no I've got this on my mind I've got this family member I've got this community issue on my mind and I'm trying to do everything to be a successful student and you have to try 10% or 100% harder to, to be successful yeah navigate through these often white systems that mm-hmm. we have to survive and thrive in so it's very challenging and and we need to just see continue to see the indigenous representation and also in roles of um leadership positions that's what it comes down to Mm -hmm. speaking to education anyways um but yeah your work is so important um i love how you uh are using it to change systems i'm going to say that your work is part of changing systems it's very uh it's real and raw and it's necessary that's how i would describe your work thank you that's the that's so <laughs> in a nice. nutshell <laughs> and for our, our listeners you know you know if you get a chance to see julia rose sutherland's work you need to to go out and see it because it will change how you look at things it will it will bring forward your own questions within your own identities, within your own assumptions, um, the communities you're part of, or that maybe perhaps you need to see yourself becoming more part of, um, because it's it's important work. And she's a group of, she's one of many Indigenous artists who are out there and who are bringing this forth to society. And that's what we need. And you are such a beautiful, incredible teacher. Uh, hand to heart and I'm walking along with you we are supporting you our our community is supporting you and the artist community that you're part of I know you're very well respected and um, I want to give a shout out to those galleries and those curators that acknowledge and really recognize the kind of work that you're doing and they are participating in the activism with you by supporting your work and showing your work because an artist can create beautiful things but if their work is not seen I mean, that's a disservice to society. <laughs> Absolutely. You're totally, the platform is there. And it's great that, you know, the initiatives to showcase, you know, more BIPOC artists is happening. 
and it's happening more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm so happy about that. Um, it's great. It's good to yes. see diversity in the art yes. scene and diversity in the perspectives. Uh, and I'm glad that it's happening. And I'm so fortunate and humbled um, that I have people who want to showcase that and help me, you know, show my work and give a platform, mm-hmm. not only to, you know, my work, but to the issues that I'm trying to convey and trying to educate people on. Yes. Wow. Well, keep it up. And I can't wait to see what you create next. I mean, just the quill work. And we do a lot of quill work, too, in my community. And I just admire the women that, and you like yourself, who can, it's so intricate. It's Mm -hmm. very intricate. And you, you know, it's not only your eyes, it's your hands, it's hand-eye coordination. And then it's the patience that comes along with it. And then the creating, you're tapping into your artistry. There's so many skills that are just immersed in all of that you know it's a lot again just artists don't get enough of that understanding of the labor of love that goes into creation there's so much so many hours I mean it's you see it in the exhibit you see it in the gallery and all the the beautiful aesthetics that are put together to present the work but People don't get to see what's what has gone on the hours the countless hours the you know Um, the research that goes into it as well and the conversations or whatever you needed to do to create that piece and I just think it's incredible you know if someone could actually sit behind the scenes and watch what an artist does like yourself they would just be in shock you know they think you're very silly for spending all this time (laughs) it's okay even now like just prepping quills a labor of love for sure and of pain you know you get yourself but I mean it's also it attaches me to my roots a bit, you know, and it grounds me. So it's nice. So for me, I like love to do it. And of course you have to love it. Otherwise, you, you know, we wouldn't spend hours and hours cutting <laughs> quill, washing quills, cutting quills, flattening quills. Then the quill work begins designing, using it, embellishing, embroidering. It's, it's wild. But yeah, I, I feel really happy to be doing it I feel it's such a beautiful practice and I'm glad to be doing something traditional in a non-traditional way yes it's very nice (laughs) wow all right my dear I am going to move us into the final four questions I know you and I could spend hours talking (laughs) days talking because I just love listening and learning from you and just our connection and what we share and anybody who gets a chance to sit with this beautiful artist is just it's a gift you know because Julia has so much to share and there's so much to learn from her and she is a beacon of light and hope, you know, and, and beauty and the gifts you share with the world. So I'm grateful there's people like you out there and in our communities that are creating this very necessary work. So um, just to give you a little overview of the final four, it's questions that I get to ask my lovely guests and they don't have a clue of what I'm going to ask them. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> it's like a pop quiz question. <laughs> I love it. Okay, great. Let's do it. Okay. Um, alrighty. So I, as I sat here and, you know, I'm thinking about the work that you do and, you know, who you are as an artist, who are you as a person, Julia? Oh, I'm a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a Virgo, if that helps anyone oh. understand. Uh, yeah, I'm critical. I'm, 
analytical in lots of ways, but I'm a weirdo. Like I just love people <laughs> and I'm, you know, I show up to these events and I have so much enthusiasm all the time. Uh, and then I have to run away because I was too enthusiastic. That's who I feel I am. Wow. I give lots. Whenever I'm in a situation or I'm somewhere, I'm 100% there until I'm not in that situation that I'm 100% off in a new world, you know. Yeah. So I would say weirdo. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> You're in good company. I'm a weirdo too. <laughs> I love that. No, that's great. Um, says a lot about you. And yes, Virgos. I'm a bit of a horoscope nerd, so I know that you Virgos can be very serious at times, but underneath there's a lot of excitement bubbling and mystery. But when you speak, you speak very thoughtfully and you don't just throw words out there to throw them out there. It's very, it's all with intention, mm -hmm. you know, and you're also very kind and patient people. <laughs> I yes. say that because my <laughs> nephew and my brother-in-law, they're Virgos. So. Oh, yeah, you, see, you know, firsthand our, what's our little a little this is yes all those things that we are <laughs> oh I love it um okay so where is your is there a dream residency and we're not even just talking programs that are already built but a loc somewhere in the world where you would love to go to do a residency and why oh I mean that's a great question Oh, what is my dream residency? You know, I would actually like to just be at home uh, on the Mi'kmaq Nation. I would, my dream would be for somehow to have the, enough money to just be at home and working with my uncle Jeffrey for a full year, just learning uh, how to be a firekeeper, you know, just a sweatshop. Like that for me would be the best. Uh, and to be able to bring my sister Amanda with me, I think it would be amazing. Um, yeah, that's what I would like to do. I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate. I have a lot of opportunities to go away. Um, the BMS Center of Contemporary Art, which have invited me to stay with them next summer, is like a dream for me. You know, McDowell is a dream mm. for me. You know, these are big the Guggenheim residency is a dream. <laughs> um, but really, I just want to go home and spend time. Like, on all I could, all I, I have enough money and expenses to, to do a project just to be there and spend time with my family and then make a make some I don't know if you make anything you also don't have to make anything the expectation of going into residency and not making something would also be very beautiful to just learn well the experience you yeah. take with you and then it will come out in your work at some point yeah. I love that that pressure to not create mm -hmm. yeah that's amazing that's wow and and wow what, I, I love that yeah going home to have that time and yeah, and you were in Paris too oh, last yes. January. Was it this January? This right January? before COVID. Yeah. Yes. Actually, the, the first kind of COVID signs were coming out. You know, we're traveling. We're like kind of aware this is kind of happening. Uh, and then we got back, and it was like full fledged wow. shutdown. So we were very lucky. Uh, you made to get it back. Home. You had to make it home. <laughs> but that yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, to show in Paris, France, like. That was, a, that was a lot for me. <laughs> Everybody, Julia Rose is amazing. I'm just putting it out there. She's kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So the third uh, final four of the final four questions. What was one of your most challenging pieces to create? Oh, um... Uh, in Punin, uh, there was the full body sugar casts. Um, it was challenging in the fact that it was the first time I ever did a full body cast mold. So, you know, you have to work collaboratively. I had um, Skyla Bjorgsen and Kit McNeil help me physically make it because wow, they yeah. had to cast my 
my nude body on a slab kind of deal. Um, and then also just the time it took to make. You know, I would have to, it would be pot after pot of boiling sugar that would caramelize to pour into it that would be the actual molds. Um, it was laborious, but it was, it was mostly, it was like the, the mental fatigue of it all. Um, and it's because the piece, you know, um, the initial start of that piece kind of started uh, in 2014 on my 22nd birthday. I had to ID my mom's body. Uh, and so and that was kind of what started this piece in a way. It was like seeing this, my mother in my likeness, you know, out of all my sisters, we looked the same, but the most. Uh, and to see her, you know, deceased, um, it was really, it was awful. It was hard. I don't think I'll ever forget, you know, that day. Um, and so years later, like, this is always on my mind. I'm thinking about the idea of the corpse. I'm thinking idea about the body, you know, the lifeless body. And so while making this work without even realizing until, like, it was made, it was my mother. So for me, it was really difficult. Uh, and then, you know, when my grandmother, Noella Ward, came to see me in Buffalo uh, for my thesis show, she came in and she walked into the room. It was just the deeply loved flesh sign we talked about and the body. And she started crying. She said, that's your mom. So whether or not people knew, I mean, it had many different connotations. We're talking about the idea of mortality. We're talking about sugar and consumption of the body. Again, the capitalistic consumption uh, and missing and murdered Indigenous women and violence against women, especially indigenous women. Um, it had all these things happening, but for me to have my grandmother walk in there and for her to say, that's Barbara, that's, it was a hard work and it still is. I mean, it was gratifying. I mean, I thought it turned out amazing and I'm excited to recreate the work, but it was very hard to make and it was really hard to see, to see, yeah. Wow. Um... Yeah, you and Amanda and your other sister are just, you're so strong. You know, I, my heart goes out to you for the loss of your mom. And, and, and yet from the photos that I've seen, I see her in you ladies and she's with you and, you know, connected to you always. And what a beautiful way to honor her and also to work through your healing with that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because you have these nuggets in your mind. I'm like, I don't know where this came from, but clearly it came from, from that one. You know, I can instigate, I'm like, oh, there's that moment of, yeah. you know, visceral sadness, mm -hmm. you know, of, of something traumatic, mm -hmm. you know, and that thing, they, they stay with you. Those are scars and things that stay with you forever and they make you stronger mm -hmm. if you let it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I, art, of course, has been something I've always used to cope or, or to use as a catalyst to help me move through. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think that's really important and it's a good motivator in a lot of ways. But it's also important to say, uh, how do I help other people? Mm -hmm. well, what can I do with this work? Can it help other people um, besides just myself? You know, I think when I was younger, it was about myself. I was making work about myself and my own perspectives. And of course, that's what you do as an artist in a way. But it's also, I think, the job of an artist is to, is to point out what you see. And to say, hey, do you see that? You know? And what is that? And to question these things and to question authority, question perceptions, all these things. That's beautiful and so um, generous, so generous to think of others through creating your work. Um, and I'm glad you brought that piece up. That I wrote that down, sugar hands. That was the other piece I wanted to talk about, your sugar cast mm -hmm. piece, because I, I remember talking with you when you came uh, 
two years ago, I believe, and worked with the students, and I, I was very fascinated by it. And I remember asking you, did it really taste like sugar? And <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> it was, it's pure sugar. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was amazing. It smelled like sugar. You know, like making the work mm-hmm. was really interesting because I was in this small studio at the university, and anyone who came into the hallway of that area was like, oh, Julia's working because they could smell like candy. It was so <laughs> sickly sweet. Like, I, I thought, like, oh, you know, like, I already have a predisposition to diabetes. Like, it's going to happen now because I'm just, like, inhaling this, like, breathing it in. And it's, like, all over my work and my walls. Like, it's yeah. – and it's sticky. And the kind of a beauty, beautiful thing about the work is it's really ephemeral in this fact that it's always changing and transforming. Yeah. You know, it was in a basement gallery, so over time it was absorbing water. Wow. And it was becoming, it went from like the sedimentary rock looking thing, this body, like you could see every, every layer, into pure glass, like just amber yeah. glass that you could see through. And then it started melting. And then I took it apart, took the head, put it in a box, sent it to Justin Trudeau, and I heard nothing back. <laughs> so, but I've heard nothing. So, if Trudeau, if you hear this, nothing, uh, not even a call. <laughs> like Still waiting. Yeah, I'm waiting. <laughs> wow. I mean, come on, that uh, commitment and that public um, statement to do the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry, still waiting on that. Yeah, still waiting, waiting for your response. (laughs) Wow. I got time, I'm here (laughs) for now, I guess. Amazing. Wow. Just, well, oh my gosh, you're, you're one of the most fascinating people I've ever met, <laughs> Julia. There's so much I want to ask you and unpack with you. And well, you know, we're going to continue this anyways. Absolutely. Okay. So um, just as you talked about your mom and your beautiful grandmother, your mom, mother, Barbara, your grandmother, Noella, and of course your beautiful sisters. Um, I see that and I, I, I see all of that feminine and strength of the women around you and the others, your grandmothers as well, and also your other grandmother on your dad's side. Um, My question to you to close our beautiful time together in conversation is being an Indigenous woman, if you can finish that sentence, being an Indigenous woman is... Powerful. I think, you know, being an indigenous, I, I wrote this in my thesis too, you know, the most dangerous thing to society is an educated indigenous woman. Um, not because of anger or grievances, but because of power uh, and because of resilience. So I think it's powerful, you know. We've been through a lot and we will continue to be through a lot, but we'll make it through. And that says a lot about um, how you deal with pain, how you deal with trauma how you deal with adversity in the world. So I would say being an Indigenous woman is powerful. You know, and we're looked upon as not powerful a lot. So I think it's, on the, I think it's the other hand, you know. Yeah. Beautiful. Wow. You are a beautiful person inside out, Julia. And the world is a much better place because of people like you who create, who inform, who hold accountable, who share, who heal, and who love. Thank you. Well, thank you. Ugh. I'm like going to cry. <laughs> it's, I just want to share with our listeners, I'm, I'm so deeply honored to have had this time with Julia Rose. And 
I think of our connection and I think of connection of our women and our when we have this time to sit and talk and this is how it used to be. We used to have the time and make the time to sit and talk and, and that's ceremony in itself because there's tears shared, there's laughter, there's questions posed, there's things that we share and, and it's an honor to have had this time with Julia Rose and I just want our listeners to make sure that you, um, I will put up the link so you can follow Julia through her social media as well as on her website and you can, you know, make the time and find out where she's exhibiting next and if it's in your area, um, go out and see her work because it's it's deeply profound and it will change the way you think and feel about things even in your own life and about the world around you and your understandings of Indigenous people. I'm grateful, I'm honoured, my heart is full and I just can't wait to continue to share this, what I've learned today. I'm going to walk away from this conversation that I've had with Julia Rose today and I'm going to share what I've learned and I know that all of you who are listening, you're going to look at things more deeply in your life and you're going to share what you've learned and maybe it will inspire you to create some things with your hands, with your mind, with your voice, your words, and your spirit that are going to bring more awareness into the things that matter to you in your own life with the world. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you, Andrea. This has been a pleasure. It's been wonderful. Wonderful.